Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. If you have your Bibles with you this tonight, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, uh, verse 29. Our topic for the last week or two has been the yoke of Christ, uh, spelled Y-O-K-E, the yoke of Christ. And our text is Matthew 11:29. Anybody want to read that? Okay, thank you, Dan. We spent several weeks looking at verse 28, uh, where Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, it's kind of interesting, uh, in verse 28, uh, we see an invitation, and the invitation is for who? For everyone. And the invitation says what? Come to me. Come unto me. And he says, you know, I will give you rest. Now, it's interesting, he mentions in verse 28, those that are labor, those are heavy laden. He says, I'll give you rest. And then in verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and other things that you shall find rest unto your soul. And it almost seems like opposites, but yet we know it's not. And so the invitation is in verse 28, and it's simply, come unto me. Now, by the way, how do we, ha- how do we need to come? What's the old hymn say? Just as we are. We simply come to Him. And so it's the grace of God. It's a very gracious call. And it's certainly to anyone who is really looking for genuine peace of heart uh, that realize that can go nowhere else. Longing for a rest of soul. And the good thing is the invitation is there in verse 28. But beginning in verse 29, uh, Jesus gives some specific terms uh, on the condition that we must meet if we are going to find the rest that he offers. Now remember, it is freely given, okay? We can't buy it. We simply have to come to him. But there certainly uh, are some requirements that we must comply with if we are going to enjoy the rest that Jesus offered. And so in verse 29, what he says, come to me, then he says, take uh, my yoke upon you. And it's interesting uh, we find here the conditions that we have to meet uh, if we're going to gain rest for our souls. And the first thing we talked about a week or so ago, we have to take his yoke upon us. Now, what it, the yoke is really a symbol. It's a symbol of what? Of what now? Okay, control. Somebody else said something. Labor, uh, subjection, all these things are involved in taking a yoke upon it. Now, again, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I've never uh, had a yoke of oxen. I've never harnessed a, uh, even a, a horse or anything like that. But I would imagine the first time you try to put a yoke on an oxen, what would, what would their reaction be? Probably not happy at all, to say the least. And probably not an easy thing to do. And so it's, it's certainly something they don't want to do. But the invitation is for us to do that, and we have to understand uh, the yoke that Christ offers. Uh, it, it's a pleasant yoke, if you will. It's nothing that's uh, going to be burdensome. Uh, not that walking with Christ is always easy, but it's something that I think will benefit our lives. Now, we're, we're going to highlight them real quick. Uh, when Jesus is taking my yoke upon you, the first thing we find out, uh, he tells us to take that yoke. So, number one, we have to put that yoke on ourselves. We have to be willing to have that yoke put upon us. Now, by the way, uh, whether it's Jesus or God, the Holy Spirit, all, all three are God, uh, what does God ever force us to do? Nothing. No, he doesn't. He gives that, but we got to take it upon us. The second thing it involves, anything that goes against God, we turn our backs on that. We might call that repentance, okay? We turn away from those things. And, of course, the third thing is, uh, we talked about a while ago being somebody controlling us, being a subjection. Uh, we change masters. Uh, Satan is no longer our master. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is our master. As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus said, uh, come to me, who, you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Then he said, take my yoke upon you. It sounds like a paradox, uh, but it's simply not. It's a part of coming to Christ. And then the fifth thing is, he says, take my yoke upon you. It's a union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, uh, and I realize we're preaching to the choir tonight, don't you agree it's wonderful to be yoked to Christ? 
Absolutely. And I was there for too many years, okay? And, you know, and, and the thing is, now let's think about that. And Martin, I'm glad you brought that up. At that time, I thought I was in control, but I wasn't. Who was in control? The devil was, and I was yoked to the world. And it's certainly a whole lot, but a good point, Brother Martin. That's true. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is true. Yes, indeed. And then we looked at the uh, three p- parts of this yoke. First of all, uh, it's a yoke of his profession. Now, we have to remember, uh, when we're saved, we become Christ-like. And it's interesting I think our lives need to bear marks of Jesus Christ in the way we live. And Jesus told the disciples and us as well, if we are ashamed of him, what will his response be toward us? He'll be ashamed of us. So we got to bear that yoke. You know, we have to identify as Christians. We shouldn't be ashamed to profess Christ as our Savior. The second thing we talked about last week uh, was the yoke of his precepts. Now, Dan, you mentioned a moment ago that a lot of time, well, probably any time, the first time any kind of animal, we, they try to put a yoke on. They don't like that. And we know God's word is good, but isn't it true that there are times God's word stands in opposition to our will? Sure it is. It's not what we would want necessarily. But we know God's words are true, and, and his word is the best. And so uh, what he commands is good for us. We know that, but yet there are times it stands in direct opposition to our own will. And so we have the yoke of his precept. And the third thing we ended up with last week uh, was the yoke of his favor. And uh, I want you to realize, and we mentioned this last week, for the most part, what was the world's reaction to Jesus when he came? Say it again. Negative. Explain that to me. They were against him. And Jesus said, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. And so, you know, whenever God's favor is on our lives, we're going to lose favor with the world. And here's what's interesting, folks. And maybe you haven't noticed this, but do you realize... Whenever we are living a righteous life, and again, not to gain our salvation, but because we want to be like the one who saved us, whenever we live a righteous life in front of our unsaved relatives and friends, it will bring condemnation in their life. It will condemn them, and they won't like that. Now, how often, or have you ever had anybody say to you in so many words, uh, Maybe a different way, but you think you're better than I am. Or you're a goody two-shoes. Well, the fact is we're not better. We're simply better off. But our, our righteous lives will condemn them. So when you when we are blessed with God's favor, count on the fact we will be out of favor. So it's interesting. Jesus said, to, go back to chapter 11 again. And let's read verse 28 and 29 together now. Somebody want to do that? Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Let's read them together. Okay, thank you, Phyllis. Now, I want you to notice... Uh, the order here that Jesus gives. And uh, I believe God's word is inspired. Of course, Christ is speaking here. It's all the word of God. The first thing he said in verse 28 was the invitation to come unto me. The second thing was a command in verse 29, uh, take my yoke upon you. And the third thing he says in verse 29 says to learn of me. Now, again, notice the order. Until we come to him, we can't take his yoke. That's the first step. And also, we will never learn of him unless we first come and take his yoke upon us. It's only when the first two are true that the last one can become a reality in our life. We can learn of him. And, of course, when we're speaking of learning 
uh, of him because we've got his yoke upon us. It means that we are surrender our wills to him and we are submitting uh, to his authority. Now, by the way, when Jesus said, uh, learn of me, he's not just speaking of intellectual learning. And let me ask a question about that. Do you think Satan has an intellectual learning of Christ? Definitely. What do you mean by that, Phyllis? Yes, so he knows about God. He has an intellectual learning of Christ, if you will. But what Christ is talking about here is far more than just an intellectual learning. He's talking about an experiential, effectual, transforming learning in our lives. Now, by the way, uh, Peter writes about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, He's not talking about just a mental knowledge or an intellectual knowledge. He's talking about a knowledge we experience as we walk hand in hand with Jesus. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verse 18. Can I notice what's going on here? Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about we're being changed from glory to glory. And of course, we're being changed by the Spirit of the Lord. And whenever we come to Jesus and we take that yoke upon us and we begin to learn of him, how long is that process going to be? Lifelong, right? Yeah, lifelong process. And so, again, salvation is free. It's a gift from God. But we're talking about a painstaking effort here. And uh, to be like Christ. Now, by the way, uh, it's even possible to study and, and acquire a theological knowledge of the person and the teaching of Christ. Um, but please understand, it's quite a bit different when we begin to really learn of him and apply that and absorb that into our lives. And that's a vital part of being yoked with him and learning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, again, anybody can acquire by diligent study a theological knowledge of the person and doctrine of Christ. Uh, people can even find the uh, at least a, some kind of a concept of his meekness and lowliness. But understand what the Bible is talking about being being uh, to learn of him is what Paul talking about being changed from glory to glory. And in other words, we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you do, don't forget in Romans chapter eight, Paul said it's the will of God that we be conformed into the image of his son. So being yoked together with Christ, learning of him, is part of that process where our lives are changed from glory to glory. And so if we are going to learn from him, we have to be completely subject to him, and we have to be in close communion with him. Now, the problem with the church in America today, it's almost like a spiritual smorgasbord. And people come and they say, I'll take this, but I don't want that. I'll have this, but I don't want that. But if we're going to be yoked to Christ, and we're going to learn of Him, what part do we reject? We don't reject. We accept all of it, or none of it. We have to accept every bit of it. And we cannot miss that. Marvin? Oh, you aren't kidding. And and, and that's exactly it. And and, and and listen, folks, in that situation, they didn't know who he was at that point. 
But by the end of the day, they realize, no wonder our hearts burn like it did. Because when you're walking in close communion like that, Christ is changing our lives. And we're becoming more and more and more like him. Now, so Jesus said, come unto me, take my yoke upon on you, and learn of me. So I, I'm, I'm assuming here, and I think you'll agree, if I'm learning from Christ, that means I'm being taught by Christ. Isn't that true? So, you know, what is it that I need? Do I need to be taught how to gain the admiration in the religious world? No, probably not. Do I, I need to be taught how to have such wisdom that, that I can solve all mysteries? No, probably not. I know what. I need to be taught so I can have people pat me on the back and tell me what a great guy I am. No, none of those are true. Jesus said, learn of me. Now, by the way, we have his word, but we also have the example of how he lived while he was here on the earth. So, hear my words, Jesus says, but also watch how I live. Watch what I do. One thing good about you and I as Christians, we never have to worry about pride anymore. Is that true? I told you I read of a guy who's going to write a book on the ten most humble men he knows and how he, cho- how he chose the other nine. <laughs> I think that was Rick writing that book, by the way. Uh, but any- anyway, uh, we have a problem with pride. And, and we like the accolade. We want to be a preeminent among our brothers and sisters. But the truth is, that is not what Christ wants us to learn of him. That's not what he was like. Now, by the way, if anybody deserved preeminence, who did? Jesus did. We laid it aside. In Luke 16, Jesus given an observation, verse 15. Look what he says. Wow. And by the way, of course, he's writing to the religious people here. And he says, you spend your time trying to justify yourself before men. Now, how hard is that to do? Not too hard. Now, isn't it true we can always find somebody we're better than they are in certain things? And we can justify this or justify that. But Jesus said to them, I want you to know something. God knows your hearts. And then he reminds them, those things you are scrambling after to grab hold of, those things that you are value much among men, God said those things are an abomination. What does that mean? Not good at all in his eyes. And of course Christ made it very clear. And so we're not talking about Gaining admiration in church. We're not talking about gaining more wisdom to solve mysteries. We don't want preeminence. So when Jesus said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. I am meek and lowly in heart. Now, keep in mind, Jesus told the Pharisees at one point, if you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. And by the way, they both agree. They both would go together. And so, when Christ says to learn of me, we have to remember, who was our example? Yeah, he was. And by the way, he's also the ultimate servant. Because he said, I am meek. And I am lowly.
so Christ gave the example. And his example of service, that's the pattern he wants us to follow. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of our toil that we do, the works that we do, if we're not careful, it'll stem from pride. When we are successful, we are, our egos are inflated, and we try for more. If we kind of falter, being rejected by others and our self-condemnation begin to weigh us down in, in guilt and in self-doubt. But we have to understand something, folks. If we are going to serve, we serve for who? For whose sake? For his. Not for my ego. Not for your accolades. But I serve for his sake. And if we can only learn to follow his path, his example... It is so much more freeing to take his attitude of serving others. And let me give you a good principle tonight. As we walk with Christ, we should not worry about pleasing others, but we ought to focus on pleasing him, on pleasing in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is addressing wives with unsaved husbands. But in verse 4, he gives a principle that I think applies even more, not just to women, but also to men as well. Look what it says, 1 Peter 3 verse 4. Thank you, Dan. We read a moment ago in one of the Gospels where Jesus told the Pharisees the things that you guys seek after are an abomination to me. Not worth anything at all. But now Peter reminds us that it's the hidden man of the heart. It's the meek and quiet spirit. And Peter said, in God's sight, that has great value. How many know God has a different economy than our world has? Great value. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thank you, Jason. Folks, that verse amazes me. And first of all, who's the one you read about there, Jason, in that verse? About God. And look where he dwells. He inhabits eternity. He dwells in the holy place, in the high holy place. But he also dwells with those of us who have a contract and a humble spirit. He dwells. With us. Peter talked about a meek and quiet spirit. God talked about a contrite and humble spirit. And I want to tell you folks, those are the things we need to cultivate in our lives. You know why? Because God says they're very valuable. He has a high opinion of those things. But then I have to ask myself a question when I see this. Do I really believe the Word of God? Do I really believe the Word of God? Jesus said, for I, talking about himself, I am meek. So what in the world is meekness? Is it weakness? No. The Bible gives us some observations, some glimpses of that. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses is being accused 
by his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. And their mindset is basically, who do you think you are? I mean, you think you're the only one who has the authority of God? I guess what the answer is. Yes. They were jealous. I mean, come on, you're just our brother. We've got just as much authority as you do. So there he is, he's being accused by his sister and brother. (laughs) Accused of assuming too much authority. Look what it says in verse 3, number 12. What? What's that say about Moses? Wait a minute now. Who was his equal in that on earth? He had none. Now, I never thought about this, but some believe that the book of Numbers may have been written by a biographer. But most theologians don't. They believe that you know Moses simply stating the fact that God gave him. He was indeed the meekest man upon the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting. Most of you know the story of what happened here. And that verse in Numbers is referring to the gentleness of Moses. And especially in this context, the gentleness of his spirit under unfair opposition. How many know... Well, how many have families? <laughs> I'm trying to be careful here, okay? But every family has problems, right? And it wasn't any different than this. And they were being unfair to Moses. They were being unjust to him. And, and rather than return evil, when God struck Miriam with leprosy, guess what Moses did for her? He prayed for her. He prayed that God would heal Miriam. Now, for the most part, the world would say, well, meekness is weakness. But God says it's not. In fact, meekness is the strength of a person who can rule their own spirit when provoked. Meekness is the power of someone to subdue their resentment of wrong. And meekness is refusing to retaliate. Now, I'm going to say, and I don't have, I'm not going to turn it tonight, but in my opinion, Christ was the greatest example of that. When he hung on the cross. Now, I, I never was a fighter. Uh, been a few years ago, and I used to be skinny and short. Now I'm round and short. I mean, round is a shape, isn't it? Uh, But anyway, so I never was a fighter. But I didn't know this. If you went to throw a punch and a guy could take you in one hand and stop you, you knew what? You had the wrong one. You were in trouble. Could you imagine when they reached out to smite Jesus, could he have stopped it? Absolutely. When he tried to pluck his beard, could he stop it? Yes. So meekness is not weakness. Christ could have, but he chose not to. We read verse 4 in 1 Peter 3 a moment ago, if I can say it. Let's go back and read the first six verses together at one time. Anybody want to read that, please?
Thank you. Now again, Peter's point is simply this. This idea of a meek and gentle spirit, even among wives, it applies to men as well. It's not a new concept. It was in the Old Testament as well. And that's how the holy women of God used to live. They trusted God. And they allowed themselves to be brought on the subject of their own husband. But it didn't mean they were weak. Because they were strong in the Lord. And so again, meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. Another thing about meekness, it is inseparably associated with gentleness as well. First, Second Corinthians 10, look at verse 1. Thank you, uh, Dan. Uh, for those who don't know, well, first of all, if you have a second Corinthians, you have what? A first. And Paul wrote second Corinthians to address some of the questions they got, but also to defend his ministry, his apostleship. And the church at Corinth were quite, for the most part, unfair to Paul. They accused of his speech of being contemptible. And in their minds, when you see him face to face, he doesn't appear to be quite so scary as his words are. So Paul is writing to defend his apostleship. And notice in verse 1 of chapter 10 of Second Corinthians, Paul says, I'm begging you. And I'm begging you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What does that mean? Maybe a better way to ask was, who was Paul's example? Jesus was. Now, I could be wrong here, and this is just, a, this is just subjective, and I realize that. But could it be Paul had something he really wanted to say, but he said, I better not? Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. Paul knew some big words. And he wasn't afraid to stand for the truth. But he realizes there's a way to approach this. So he says, I'm coming to you using Christ as my example, and I'm coming to you in meekness and gentleness. And the comment in the last part of verse 1 is really, most scholars believe, a throwback to what they said about him. I know what you're saying about me, you're saying. You're saying when I'm there, I'm kind of base among you. And you say that when I'm gone and speak, I'm pretty bold. But Paul said, let me tell you something about that. I'm coming to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. They are inseparable. Titus chapter 3, look at verse 2. Paul is writing to a young preacher there, Titus. He left him there at Crete. Tough job for Titus. A lot of opposition. The Cretans were known as liars. 
And Paul left Titus to minister there. So he says to Titus, be careful how you speak about man. He says, be gentle and show meekness. Notice what he said, unto all men. So meekness is also the opposite of self-will. That doesn't mean you back down from the truth. But it means you handle people with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And one thing I learned many years ago, the body of Christ, the church, we are in the people business. And we can present one of two attitudes with our finger outstretched and say, I dare. We can stretch out our arm and say, I care. We are in the people business. <laughs> I stopped take, keeping track some years ago of the times that I wanted to lash out. And I didn't. And most of those times, I was right in what I did, but I would have been wrong to lash out because my attitude was wrong. Now, make no mistake about it, and you can hear me well. I have never backed down from the truth of God's Word, and I won't. But I've also found out that I'm not the only one in the body of Christ. A lot of times Pam and I will be talking about something and she says, you're not the only one. And I say, yeah, but I'm the most important one. <laughs> now, I'm kidding, of course, but that's the wrong attitude. Because meekness is truly the opposite of self-will. Meekness is being pliable. It means we, we yield and we offer ourselves without resistance and we come clay in the hands of the potter. That's meekness. Now, now remember, the one in our text who said, I am meek and lowly, who was that? It was Jesus. We're talking about the maker of heaven and earth. The creator of all things. He said, I am meek and lowly. Now we know he was willing to take on our shame. The depth he went to do that. We understand that. I mean, he came down. He descended for our sakes. But also remember, there's only one God, but He exists in three persons. Who are they? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He was willing to submit Himself to the will of the Father. Now don't ask me to explain, I can't. Co-equal, all God. Not three gods, one God. And yet there was a pecking order, so to speak. 
It's even hard to say that. But he was willing in his lowliness to submit to the will of the Father. The exact verse has slipped my mind, but I think it's in John 5. Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. What's that mean? Say it again. Every time. I found in my life, be careful about using the word always or never. But when Jesus said, I always do the Father's will, he did always do the Father's will. In fact, being the perfect Savior, and when he came to earth, the perfect servant, there was nothing in Christ that opposed the will of God. We're not going to read the verse. Now, you know the verse. What do you pray in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Isaiah 53, verse 7. What does that verse tell us about Jesus? His meekness. Now please understand, and don't miss this, folks. And I know from a human standpoint, standpoint, he was bruised and beaten by the Roman soldiers, but the Bible says he was bruised by God. It was the will of the Father. And Christ was willing to do it. In his meekness, he surrendered his own will. And you can't help, as we see him in his majesty of meekness, when he stood there like a lamb before his shearers, and he stood there and he committed himself to the righteous judge. Revelation 12.3. What a contrast. We see the pride there. This great red dragon. <laughs> representing Satan. And the lion, the lamb... Stands as a symbol of meekness and gentleness. I will never understand nor get over the fact that the meekness of Christ is clearly revealed when he agreed to become the covenant head of the church. He assumed our nature. He became flesh. During his childhood days, he was subject to his parents. There was a time before he began his public ministry he goes to John the Baptist and asks John to do what to him? Baptize him. Why? Why? He was willing to submit to the orders of baptism. He was willing to do whatever it took to submit to the will of the Father. I don't have the verse, but in Peter, Peter says when they railed upon him, he didn't rail back. And it literally means when they threw words at him, he didn't throw words back. 
Remember the lie they told you as a child? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt them. Is that true? That's a lie of the devil. He made no retaliation. He didn't hurl back. He didn't count his own life dear to himself, but thank God he was willing to lay it down for us. That's meekness. So we don't need to learn from him how to become great. We don't need to learn from him how to become self-reliant or important. But we need to learn from him how to deny ourselves. We need to learn from him to become pliable and gentle. We need to learn from him to become servants. And first and foremost, to serve him, but also our brothers and sisters in Christ. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Now, I mentioned that meekness is the opposite of self-will. And so lowliness is the reverse of self-esteem and self-righteousness. Uh, Lowliness, he's meek and lowly, self-abasement, no doubt about that. But it's more than refusing to stand up for our own rights. Matthew 20, verse 28. What did Jesus come to do? Sir, to the point of giving his life. Luke 22, verse 27. You see the point there? In the world, the greater one who's the one who's, who uh, is sitting there, and the lesser one is the one who serves him. But Jesus says, you'll notice what I'm doing. I'm not sitting at the table, I'm doing what? I'm serving. Now we know he was greatest because he's God himself, but he didn't come to sit at a table to be served. He came as one who served. And by the way, gentleness is determined by servanthood. He was willing to be a servant. That's exactly what he came for. Matthew 23, verses 8 through 12. Amen. Now remember, God's got a different economy here. Now also remember, Christ was the Son of God. And His glory was hidden in the form of a servant who would ultimately pay, who would pay the ultimate price to serve others. He was going to give His life. And Jesus said, because He served His disciples and us, we ought to serve Him as well. And not clamor to occupy better positions. Now remember, how great was Jesus? The greatest there is. And yet, this grace of servanthood was preeminent in his life. Luke 2, 7. Now, what would... Where would man think that the king of kings would be born in? 
Huh? Yeah, not in a manger. John 13, 5. Who's the he in that verse? Jesus. He's doing what? He's washing their feet. He's the son of God. He created all things. Hear me well and we're done. Christ was the only one born into this world who could choose the home and the circumstances of his birth. Could he not? He was born in a manger. Peter called his hand that night in John 13. But Christ washed their feet. So where does that leave us? If we are going to be pleasing to him, we must learn of him. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Learn of me. And I will give you rest. Amen. Let's stop there for tonight.